Episode 113 of the Michael Anthony Show, and if this week's guest needs an introduction, yeah, well then you're just out of touch with culture. Review the show, rate the show, tell people about the show, and maybe, you know, well maybe just enjoy the show. Stevie Van Zandt. Here we go. The sinking sound of despair The smell of dread in the air I'm head to toe in my own fear I'm going to die and I need to cry we have the privilege of being joined by the interesting and evergreen Stephen Van Zandt. How are you, my man? <laughs> Good, my friend. How's everything? Pretty, pretty bad, Steve, to be honest with you. Um, I didn't just get you on as a guest to the show because your career fascinates me, but also as a form of therapy. A man of your wisdom and a man of your experience could, uh, could do wonders for me right now. We've been locked down here for over a year straight, more or less. It's about six degrees outside, and the political climate is as grim as the physical climate. Just pick us up, Steve. There's a lot of pressure on you today. We need a pick-me-up from you. It's all part of the job of being a producer, so I'm, uh, I'm fully prepared for this, for this eventuality. A lot of the listeners will, uh, will know your work, how far you reached in two extremely competitive industries. Originally a musician, out and out a musician. Your legacy will be music in your eyes always. Well, yeah, you start off with one with one particular uh, long shot dream. You know, are you lucky if you if you get there in those days? And it's actually, it's actually it's even harder now to tell you the truth. But but um, yeah, you, you start off as just you know hoping you can you can uh, be one of your even in the same world as your heroes and and all my heroes at the time were the what we called the British invasion. You know, that's what got me dreaming. So you're sitting down, you're watching TV. It's 1964 and on come the Beatles, the Ed Sullivan show. And you like millions of young Americans had your lives changed. And you said, I'm never cutting my fucking hair again. I don't believe in authority no more. Is that the situation we're talking about? <laughs> exactly. I know it's a, it, 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 it's, it's unfortunate that, uh, you know, everybody on the show probably says the same thing that's my age but but it was true i mean it was 70 or 72 million of us having our lives changed overnight and and you know how i like to explain it is you know it was they were so new you know we only caught them halfway through the careers you know they They'd been going since 57 and were gone in 69. So, you know, they were quite sophisticated by the time we discovered them. And so they they opened up this incredible new world, which absolutely uh, saved my life and other freaks and misfits like me who just could not find any place to fit in to the society we were being handed. Before your day, were those freaks and misfits just sent off to war so they had no choice to express themselves? Was that why they were so compelling? Because suddenly there was this non-World War freedom amongst your generation in comparison to your fathers and grandfathers in which that void of traditionalism had created. It needed to be expressed somewhere. You couldn't just be whisked off to the beaches of Normandy. The lower classes certainly were the fought for every war, um, you know, as well as the lowest paying jobs or the or in some cases, the labor, the labor jobs, which weren't always the lowest paying, but um, the hardest work. Well, the, the difference is between before our generation, 
there was no such thing. You see, that's that's the tricky bit. Um, even even the even the fifties generation, which was the first generation of rock and roll, those those guys, those kids set up the template that we would follow in terms of the cars and girls and you know yeah and, and, and you know you know the, the basic template you know but 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 they all basically grew up and became the parents you see yeah um you know so ours was the first generation that did not grow up to be our parents in fact we didn't grow up at all you know um at least some of us and and so there was no precedent. There was no sort of comparison to freaks before us because there weren't any. You know, um, it was it was a slow prog progress uh, coming from. I, I, I identify it with the, with the beat poets who basically were starting to question authority, and that was a new idea. Just questioning authority was a new idea uh, from the World War II generation, you know? God was always used as well, Steve, wasn't it? As the, as the affirmation and the confirmation of authority. It did begin to drift after we'd seen such mass death and such pointless yeah. loss of youth. Your generation was coming up going, no, there's fucking more to this than nationalism. And let's bring in a bit of globalism into the ideas here. Yes, that's right. It was the birth of consciousness, I call it, you know, and that's not an exaggeration. We literally became conscious or the beginnings of it in the 60s. And, and, um, and, and, and so, you know, we, we, we created the biggest generation gap in history. Um, uh, at least until now, and I think I think the, what's going on right now is actually competitive in terms of the generation gap. Yeah. But it's much more subtle now. You know, in our day, it was wide open. I mean, our parents were completely embarrassed by us. You know, okay, they they, they thought we were just a lost, a completely lost generation, and uh, you know, this silly rock and roll stuff was going to go away. You know, and and we'd be left with no craft, no job no future whatsoever, you know? Which did happen to a lot of people who didn't have the, not the opportunity, but didn't didn't create themselves as, as nice of a path as you did. Like there would have been many rebels from your day who it didn't work out for. Yeah, I think that's true. They would have, they would have gone off and joined a commune or something, you know, uh, at some point or, or gone to Canada to avoid the draft or, you know, there was a lot of different paths. You're right. Um, it wasn't obvious. You know, it was no, we were literally making up the rules as we went along at that point. We, there was no, there was no, there was, you know, there, there was no guidebooks as to what was going to happen with our society. In fact, we've never recovered from it, by the way. I mean, you know, we've never, the, the gap that began then is, is continuing to this day. Where do you think you got the fearlessness, Steve? To, to chase everything with such a I would I would love I would love to take credit and 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 to and to and to you know pretend it was fearlessness uh, uh, but I just can't lie to you I just couldn't do anything else I was a complete you know misfit I, I I did not want to go to college I did not want a straight job I did not want to join the military I was too small for sports I just didn't fit in and I couldn't find a place in society you know so uh, even though rock and roll was a completely ridiculous long shot, I mean, your parents would actually say to you, what, are you going to be a Beatle? Mm. You're going to be a Rolling Stone, you know? And you had to admit to yourself, well, you know, that is a bit of a stretch, isn't it? Yeah. I'm in fucking New Jersey, for Christ's sake, you know? And there was no such thing, uh, really, uh, for our generation anyway. 
uh, as a rock star from New Jersey. You know, I mean, four seasons a little bit, but uh, but anyway, you know, it was it was it was a uh, it was a time to to um, you know, if I anybody who had a choice, you know, I mean, everybody had a band the day after the Beatles played on 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 this variety show called Ed Sullivan. I mean, literally everybody had a band in the garage, uh, and and a few of them got out of the garage, but as soon as an option came up. You know, the choice to go to college, the choice to, you know, work for your father or whatever it was. Everybody took it, you know. It was only me and Bruce Springsteen, literally, in, in, this, in the entire state, who did not have uh, any other choice, which is why we gravitated to each other. What age were you yeah. when you met Bruce Springsteen? I think I was 15. And he was 16. And we both had local groups. We, we literally were the only two people we ever met that felt the same way about it. You know, that was, it was a religion to us. You know, yeah. it, it was not, it was not a hobby. It was not something we did on the weekend, you know, even, even though it was, of course, while we were in high school. Um, you know, it was, it was just, it was everything to us. Everything. Was the dynamic established instantly in terms of Bruce? Was the, as you named him, which he is known commonly now, the boss, and you were a creative inspiration behind it who was willing to, to allow him to, to take the limelight? No, 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 it wasn't that way. Um, my band was probably more popular than his, and I remained uh, my own little force of nature right through, right through the 60s, and, and um, right at the end of the 60s, I decided, you know what, I am now, I mean, Bruce was an entirely different person in those days. He He's more similar to what you know what you might consider if you look at the grunge, you know, the early grunge guys, you know, just you know, extremely long hair, you know, just standing there, shoegazing as we call it. Yeah. You know, no, 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 no performance, no, he barely spoke. I mean, I was I was I was hanging around with him and people were wondering why. You know, they thought he was might have been, you know, literally mentally you know, disturbed. I mean, yeah. it was very, very, very quiet and shy music know? just to express pain was the mantra at that time yeah yeah so so no he was not obviously going to be the world's greatest entertainer which yeah. is what he turned out to be you know and 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 so at a certain point i decided to to bet on him you know i just felt he had something special and i and i and i could compliment it and so I was a boss in my own world and very, very, very respected. Like I say, I mean, arguably more popular than he was. So when I joined up with him and I started calling him the boss, that was that really people took notice because I was a quite a significant boss myself, you know. So, so that's, that's when things started to change. And um, I talked him into using his name in the band. You know, he didn't want to. I, I talked him into using one of, you know, we had many bands, but one of them was the, the Bruce Springsteen band, which was the first time he used his name. And I had to talk him into it. It took me weeks to talk him into it. You know, always looking out for my own best interests. And and uh, Bruce is the type of guy that, was he the type of guy who wouldn't listen to many people or people maybe be fearful to approach him due to his presence? And you would have been one of the only guys who expressed what you believed in order to be honest with a friend, really. Yeah, I, I, and that, that goes, you know, right to this day, to be honest. I mean, you know, it's, it's, I, I think it's an obligation of being a real friend. You know, you got to, you know, everybody who becomes famous, if, they, if they're really smart, they should keep one guy around from the old neighborhood, you know, okay. to, to, to tell them the truth. You know what I mean? You, you don't have to take the advice. You know what I mean? You can ignore it. 
But you ought to have one person who's not afraid of you. They'll tell you absolutely the truth, you know? And that, you know, that, and that was my role at the time. And to some extent still is. Really, uh, and that's you know. that's what's so fascinating. As a, a lot of listeners of this show will know you as the portrayer of Silvio Dante in the iconic Sopranos, and you had no acting experience previously. They see you present an award to the Rascals at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and David Chase tells you that he wants you to act in this show. You've no acting <laughs> experience whatsoever, and mm. you you don't get Tony Soprano because HBO say that needs to be a proper actor. But Chase goes, no, we, we, you still need to be in this. And you walk into a set of what would become a show that changed drama history. Did you use your personal experience with Bruce to embody Silvio Dante? Yes, in the end, uh, it, 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 it grew very quickly into that relationship, you know, because it was the only character that wasn't in the script in the, in the original pilot. Because, um, you know, once HBO said to David Chase, he could not cast me as, as Tony, he said to me, you know, any you can do any other part you want you know and and i said to him at the time i said listen man you know now that i'm thinking about it i'm really it was such a a fast sort of crazy couple of couple of weeks i said now that i'm thinking about it i really feel quite guilty taking a, an actor's job you know my my wife's a real actor she you know went to school and yeah. did all the classes and you know i've seen i've seen what real actors do they have to go through all this stuff you know, and I said, I, I really shouldn't be taking another cat's job who's been working for years on this. So he says, listen, all right, I'm not going to, uh, in that case, I'll write you in a part that doesn't exist. All right, so you're not taking anybody's job. And um, he says, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I, you know, I I never saw myself as an actor, but I, um, I had written a treatment uh, of a script of a cat named Silvio Dante who um, had a club, and, um, so, you, so you'd written you'd written Silvio in a way before he was introduced to the Sopranos. Yes, yes. Okay. And 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 he was a sort of a, you know, he was an independent uh, hitman that would do jobs for the for all the families, and he had a club. It was kind of like um, uh, a mob version of, of of Casablanca in a will. In yeah. A way, yeah. You know, and all the five families had their own tables, and the police commissioner had his table, and the mayor had his table. So a lot happened within his club, but he he lived in the past. You know, it was even though it was it was set in, in the present day, but he but he's living in the past. So it was like an old the old um, Copacabana type of club where you had yeah, the, yeah. the dancing girls and and the comedians. You know, the Jewish Catskill comedians. And, and that's why we have Silvio looking like he's in the 1950s in comparison to the rest of the the members of the family. Exactly. He he was a real traditionalist I explained that to David and he said well that's a good idea and he went back to HBO and he said well we can't afford it but but we'll make it a strip club instead you know and you'll you'll run the strip club for the family you know and and, um, and so I became this underboss sort of uh, consigliere that that was also kind of a, a diplomat and would would you know kind of an ambassador for the family to go out you know and 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 work with other people because some of the, some of the mob members cannot relate to anything outside the family. So I was sort of the, the ambassador. And then, and then by the second season, I really, it had really become the, the consigliere and underboss and, uh, 
and was using my relationship with Bruce because I knew exactly what the dynamics were. You know, sometimes you'd be the only one being honest and, and you'd make the boss really mad, you know, yeah. and they would get really mad at you, man, you know. And you and, grew and, up with Bruce before he was big and you grew up with Tony before he was big. Yeah, that was my, that was, that, that was the biography I wrote, you know. Would you see similarities between Tony's pronoun and Bruce in terms of like, would there be a sociopathic nature accidentally due to fame of Bruce Springsteen, you could see in Tony, or kind of the the hypocrisy that lies in Tony. Would that lie in Bruce a bit? Uh, no, no, not actually. There's no, there's no, no real comparison. You know, would he be laughing with you about the fact that he kind of would see a bit of the relationship between you and him in the show when he watched it, and kind of say, "I know what you're doing there," and find the whole thing funny? I think he did. Yes, yes. I, I think in the end, he he, he did. Yeah, he 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 said, you know. He said, that's the real you, you know, the, 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 yeah. the little Steven part is the acting. He says, you know, you know, the, Silvio's the, the real Stevie Van Zandt. How did you find the actual, um, the art of acting so natural though? Was it, was it difficult in terms of Silvio, great guy, honest friend, a good family man, but a murderer. How did you embody that so accurately as somebody with no acting experience? Was it just belief and really creativity because you've had, you'd had success in rock and roll, so fuck it. I'll have success in acting. Is it all just confidence and self-belief? There's some of that, but I think it's it's more in the research and and and, and your instincts and the fact that it was it was a bit of a hobby of mine, if you can call it that, an interest. I I I just I'd read every mob book that was ever written. Okay. I'd seen every movie going all the way back to the 30s, you know. And I kind of grew up in that atmosphere to an extent. I mean, in, in the Jersey Shore, you know, a lot of it was owned by if they weren't mob guys they would want to be mob guys who were equally scary you know um so so you kind of grew up in that atmosphere in our part of the state you go to the beach and someone would point out you know that's Vito Genovese's summer home over there you know so you know it was always sort of in the Italian-American New Jersey culture, you know? And was there something uh, beautiful? Because like we have a gangland problem over here in Ireland in which you just kind of view them as gangs and they'd like to be considered the mafia, perhaps inspired by American literature and film, but everybody knows that it's, it's drug pushing, it's murder, it's intimidation, and it's wrong and it's immoral. But in America, amongst not only the Italian community, but all the people in Hollywood, the Jewish community as well, who, who promoted the, the showing of this was the respect for the mob because the government was so dishonest anyway that people couldn't really they couldn't really separate who was more evil if you're going to bomb Hiroshima and Nagasaki and have the blood of Vietnamese people on your hands why what why not glorify the fucking mob no that's that's an interesting that's an interesting point and an interesting way to put it I I don't think that was actually true until these last four years, you know. And then now, at that you know, the Trump years absolutely, uh, you know, proved what you what you just said. But but look, we we went out of our way. The, the truth of the matter is, the modern mob is extremely it's an extremely boring job. I mean, you know, there's there's. Uh, there's, we, we went out of our way to try and not romanticize it. If you really look at it, um, I think that was the challenge and, and the brilliance of David Chase was to make a show that you know, is, is, is actually portraying one of the most boring jobs in the world to yeah. make it compelling. You know, there's a, you there's a lot of boring? waiting around. There's a lot of sitting in the back room of bars with nothing yeah, to do but yeah. gossip. Yeah, I, mean, I get that. That's it. You know, they read. You know, they're reading the racing form all day. Yeah. You know, I mean, that, that's literally what's going on. And you know, how do you make that compelling? 
you know, you want to, you know, you got to keep an audience interested. So the dynamic between the family and the job, I think, became a universal truth. You know, yes, it was a little bit of a weird job. You know, most people that aren't in the mob, in the mafia, but they do have a conflict between their their work and their family. Usually, you know, how much time can you give one or the other, and and all of that conflict. So I think that the conflict, I think, became universal, which you know? relates to everybody. And that's what I say when I mean that mob culture became not only so accepted, but in film admired by the people in America. Because is it really different to a banker or somebody who's involved in taking from others for personal gain? And although it might not involve cold-blooded murder, it still might involve more long-term death then direct murder that is involved in the mob. It's just a symbol of the problems of capitalism, really, mafia life. Yeah, it's a longer discussion and we probably have time for it. But, 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 but the truth of the matter is most Americans, you know, it's a big country here, man. And, and you know, most Americans are never going to have any direct, uh, you know, uh, contact with the mob. So it became a bit mythological through the years. I mean, it's sort of replaced the Western um, yeah. as, as as the as you know as, as the country's genre that represents the anti-authoritarian part of our nature. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. people love the fact that these guys make up their own rules. You know, and they, and they and, uh, and they and they and they 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 break they break all of society's rules. They don't wait in line. You know, all the things that a lot of people would really like. To, yeah, yeah, like yeah. To you know, uh, and and they kind of ignore the fact that most of them end up dead or in jail. You know, so, so uh, in twenty years, and that's a great point that it be kind of it became the modern Western. In twenty years, are we looking at a drama format in which like computer and internet hackers are those anti-authority people that we want to be? Jeez, I hope not. <laughs> that, 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 that's a grim reality, though, Steve. Isn't it's it? It's gonna be so boring, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, I'm glad I won't be around to see it. What was it like, though, to act opposite um, your your good friend Jimmy Gandolfini? The performance of him in that show is it's it's completely breathtaking. Was it? Was the method yeah, was I mean, method acting a part of it? Was it true that he used to get himself angry deliberately and to deprive himself of sleep in order to capture the character? He was he was a method guy. Yes. Um, you know, I've described it as the greatest acting school one could have possibly gone to, and I mean that. I mean, as I've said a million times, I, I, you do a scene with Jimmy Gandolfini, you you walk away a better actor. There's yeah. no doubt about it. You know, but they were all very good. You know, and. Um, you know, I, I, like I said, I, I, had, I did this biography of my character. Uh, I, I, I made sure I, I went, I found out where, where John Gotti got his clothes made, you know, and I went to John Gotti's okay. tailor, which was good timing because John had just gone to jail and would never come out. Um, yeah. And, you know, so I actually got the tailor hired by the Sopranos in the end. You know, he became the Sopranos wardrobe uh, tailor. Um, I made the character, I felt if I could look in the mirror, and see this other guy, I could be him, you know? Okay. So, so in, part of, in part of my character was fearlessness. And so when I came out of that trailer, I was that guy, you know? I, you know that's the only way I could have, I could have acted with those. Yeah, with you, those you couldn't have walked in there as a little Steven or else you would have just turned no, around and left no. the set. No, I mean, and, and to this day, I mean, I, I, I'm so impressed by actors who can act looking like themselves you know i don't i don't quite understand that because you know I'm, i know myself so well uh that you know i i need to i need i need the physical 
the physical help, you know, to, to, to change my character. And, uh, you know, so the, you know, the bandana ended up coming in handy, actually, you know, uh, I, I couldn't have known I was going to eventually become an actor, but, um, is, is there a you know, selflessness in you, Steve, that in a way negatively impacted you creatively in terms of like being Bruce's guy, helping with the writing, not taking center stage, being the right hand man, the Sopranos. And then also when you left the East street band due to the apartheid and, and made huge difference to what was an absolutely disgraceful situation, but it did affect you creatively in terms of your career. Is there a bit of a savior complex within you naturally, do you believe? Uh, no, I, I look at it, it's really the opposite, I think. I think it's, you know, my own version of megalomania, to be honest. I mean, uh, I, don't, I don't see it myself as selfless at all. I think it's all, I'm very selfish, I think. You know, I created my radio network so I could turn the radio on and hear, you know, great radio, you know. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I started a record company so I could sign great bands and, and you know, make great records. I, I, I got involved with apartheid because, frankly, it was embarrassing. You know, yes. uh, it, it, it affected my my definition of America did not fit with that sort of slavery, you know, that Reagan was endorsing. And, and um, you know, I just I found it a personal, you know, personal affront. You know, I was like, this, this cannot this cannot stand. You know, we're going to do something about this. So it's all I think it's all very personal, really. You know, and and, um, and I and I love being the guy behind the scenes. You know, I love being the producer. If I had to describe myself, it would be as a producer first, which means, you know, you have to have a pretty big ego uh, to, 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 you know, put all of, put all the pieces together, make sure they're all doing what your what your vision is, you know, uh, and, and that, and that, and that holds for the radio shows I created, yeah. the TV shows I created. I, I did a Broadway show, you know, I, you know, I've, I've put, yeah, you trust your judgment of creative production nearly higher than anyone else. But that's the thing. But you have to be an egomaniac to do these things. You know, you have yeah. to be an egomaniac to be a DJ in the first place. Yeah, yeah, you know yeah, what yeah. I mean? And to walk onto the set of a mafia show pre-written with your own character means that there's a level of self-belief that is borderline unhealthy. Yes, yes. I, I think that's I think that's true. And I, and I think all people in show business are borderline unhealthy. <laughs> I think, you know, I think that might be prerequisite, actually, for being yeah. in show business, you know. Is, is show uh, business but, but, nearly an, it's, a, it's nearly an out for natural biological mental health problems. And if you're born a bit kooky and you're born a bit too eccentric, if you're not in showbiz, you're, you're, you're going to fuck yourself up. Yeah, and I think, you know, my, my one problem perhaps was having... Um, too healthy a childhood in, in a way. Okay. Um, because I don't I don't need the spotlight. You see, you you know, to to be a front man, a really great front man, you know, which I became in the eighties because I had to. But but it's not my natural inclination. You know, I, I really would rather not be in a spotlight, uh, and because I, I just don't I don't feel that need. You know, uh, I think I think the the best front men they probably all would admit this very freely. You know, they're they're making up for some kind of love I think that they didn't get when they were young. You know, you know, very simple very simple psychoanalysis, but I think that's true. And would you and would I, you have avoided I, kind of the drugs and stuff that came at rock and roll throughout that era in terms of over abuse? I presume you've seen a lot of great men go before their time. Yeah, that's uh, it was really a, a tragedy that that in the end, drugs really really did affect. The revolution, if you will, uh, you know, the, the, a lot of the, the great music revolutionaries uh, have gone 
And, uh, and I mean, now it's still happening. Only, only now it's legal drugs that's killing everybody. You know, I mean, I, yeah. I'm so old. I remember people dying from illegal drugs. You know, yes. uh, you know I was very, very sensitive. Oops, my dog is, uh, my dog is chiming in here. Hang on. Be cool, baby. Be cool. Be cool. Um, I, I, um, I was very sensitive to the, to the psychedelics. So, um, you know, the, the marijuana hashish, uh, years were very very short i only did a couple of acid trips um which is all i needed to you know understand the entire world <laughs> how, do you, and, how did you find kind of the acid trips of the 60s because you look at pre and post acid beetles and the work stays the same but do you think that the acid trips made the beetles nearly too hyper aware and nearly find the whole point of fame and creation too pointless to an extent that they had no option but to go their separate ways. And you're somebody who knows them personally, and it's not every day you get to, to talk to somebody who does know the Beatles personally. Is there a sense of regret in the lads from the Beatles that without the drugs, we could have done more? Well, that's a very interesting subject. Um, I never talked to either Paul or Ringo about that, but, but just observing it from other close friends. Um, you know, first of all, they were extraordinarily talented before they did drugs, which I think is an important yeah. part of the story. You know, I mean, some people think, oh, I'm going <laughs> to drop acid and write strong exactly. fields forever. You know? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's not going to happen. Yeah. Um, and in fact, you can make an argument that, that once you start doing drugs, especially to the extent that John was, I mean, he was started, you know, he started popping acid like M&Ms. I mean, uh, you know, at that point, you're going to start to have a negative, it's going to have, it's going to start to have a negative effect. When you first do drugs, you know, the, the, the psychedelics anyway, um, it does broaden your mind. It does open yeah. your mind up to, to some very interesting possibilities. And they and they did amazing things in the beginning, such as Revolver and 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 even Sergeant Pepper, right right into, you know, right into All You Need Is Love. I mean, you know, '67 was an extraordinary year for them. If you look at the the three singles alone, you know, at that point though, you know, you're going to start to have diminishing returns, and and that's the thing about drugs, that that in the end, you know, it, it fools you into thinking, oh, you know, it's a wonderful world. I'm, I'm learning all of these things and it's going to last forever. I learned about drugs from the Indians. You know, I spent a lot of time in, with the Indians uh, in my previous foundation, Solidarity Foundation. Was that inspired by George Harrison? Because I know you've said before that he was the Beatle that you resonated most with. Well, yes. I mean, that's that's another that's another uh, part of my interest is that India. I'm talking about American Indians. Okay. Uh, yeah, and the American Indians taught me that they, you know, they get high, you know, once or twice a year, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and you know, they smoke the, you know, they'll, they'll smoke the herb. They'll go to the sacred place. They learn things, and then you come back from the mountain, and and then you apply those things to your life, you know. Um, but if you if you get high too often, you go to that mountaintop and you kind of stay there, you know. Yes. And and. and and that's the problem, you know, with drugs in general. So, you know, I really, I, I try to explain to people, we did not take drugs to get high. We took drugs to gain enlightenment, to, to learn. Yeah. And, I, and people find that hard to believe, but we did, not, we did not take drugs as an escape. You know, it was the opposite. We wanted to learn more. And again, there was no internet. There was no, you know, 
way to learn these things. I mean, I learned everything about, yes, um, the, the Hindu religion from George Harrison. I learned about the Buddhist religion from Allen Ginsberg, you know, uh, and, and, you know, eventually that led to Taoism, you know, and I, I learned all about Eastern philosophy from from records and, and from and from you know Ginsburg influencing Bob Dylan you know that's that was my education you know but now you know you get all this all this information at your fingertips you know so there's no real need to, to do drugs the way which, we did, which, you know? which is a new drug really though as well it's excessive information to the point of pointlessness and that's where these guys kind of reach and if you look at someone like Bruce Springsteen and the fact that his career has such longevity and such consistency, you can tell there's no drugs involved. But even when you keep doing it and you keep doing it, it reaches the same point of it's no longer filling that void. Because if the Beatles were still performing, we'd kind of be sick of them. So it's all kind of a, a trade-off, really, isn't it? You see, you can't predict what would have happened if they stayed together and, and not done drugs, you see? Because it was the drugs that, it, that kind of burned things out. They, they You know, it it increases the intensity of what you're doing to the point where you burn out. And, you know, suddenly they were going back to let it be and get back. And, you know, they were kind of going back to their roots. Yeah. And, and John Lennon continued going back to his roots as, as a solo artist, you know. Um, Did because, you ever meet John Lennon? No, no. Sorry to say, or George, you know, never met them, either one of them. You've performed with Paul. I know that you're obviously a seasoned musician. You've played with everyone. But when you're on stage with Paul McCartney, are you, are you loosening the shoulders? Are you letting it go? Is there still that little 2% going to you? This is fucking Paul McCartney I'm singing with here. No, you can't. You can't. You've you got to compartmentalize. You, you, you can't do that or else you would, you would not be able to walk on stage, you know? Yeah. I mean, it was, a, it was an honor for him to come on stage with us at Hyde Park, um, you know, and that was the first time. And that was, that was so wonderful. And then they, they pulled the plug on us, you know. Um, we, we went five minutes over the... Uh, over the curfew and they actually yeah. pulled the plug on Paul McCartney and Bruce Springsteen. Uh, and then the next time Paul invited me and Bruce on stage with him at Madison Square Garden. And that was fun. But him coming on my stage was a whole nother thing. I mean, that was not just one of the high points of my life for him to, you know, endorse my music and me, you know, uh, that's a whole very, very different thing, but you can't, but you look, you have to look, you have to put the fan part of you away and just treat him like a fellow musician. And he's a great one. I mean, for him to come on stage with me with no rehearsal, no idea what we were going to do, you know, it was a packed house at the Roundhouse. And, you know, it was a very, very big audience, you know, whatever that is, three, 4,000. And, 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 uh, and, you know, and he just came on, um, you know, trusting, trusting me, you know, to, you know, and I'd thrown together this little Richard version of I saw her standing there. And I, I knew he was a Little Richard fan because I, I never would have heard a Little Richard if it hadn't been for Paul McCartney. Yeah, and the yeah, Beatles. yeah. So I mean, you know, it worked out. It worked out well. But but um, you know, you have to you have to just put that aside and and just uh, treat him as a as a musician, which is how he wants to be treated. You know? How do you do that so well, though? Because I think that's something that holds a lot of people who are seeking creative careers back. Although you have to be impressed to the extent to get inspired, but you can't be impressed enough to be intimidated. This, you know. 50 years in between, <laughs> you know, you have, you have, you have a bit of time to get used to the idea. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, you know, if I'd met him the week after I bought the first Beatles album, it would have been a different story. Yeah, you yeah, know? Yeah. 
or even or even you know 10 years or 20 years after i you know literally the first album i ever bought was meet the beatles which we thought was the beatles first record but it actually turned out to be the second but um you know you think of that little kid that that 12 year old kid listening to that album you know 12 13 year old um, you know, it's quite a different guy now that, that, that actually meets, you know, Paul McCartney. Um, so, so you know, you, you've had a couple of decades to get used to the idea of... Being when you've achieved what you've achieved and seen what you've seen in terms of like the actual two eyeballs that you own have witnessed things in this life that's probably in the top 1% of just outrageous entertainment and adventurism that most of society will never be subject to. How do you weigh up these next 15 or 20 years that await you in life? Like, what, what do you, as a guy whose youth was so exciting, is it rock and share and reminiscing or how do you get fulfillment? Because it must be, oh, age oh, must be more difficult for people who have had such entertainment. I'm not, you know, I'm not feeling it. I, I, I really don't believe in chronological time anymore. I think we've actually changed the concept of chronological time, this entire rock generation. I really do. I mean, I personally know seven people who are in their 80s and are working, okay, on stage, working. I mean, I didn't know anybody over 60 growing up. I mean, my grandparents, you know, were 50, 60. And yeah, that, yeah. Was, that was very old, you know. Uh, you know. Um, so I think, I think the concept of chronological age has changed, first of all. Second of all, I just had the most productive three years of my life. Okay. All right. And, and, and you're right. I've had a terrific life, but I, the most productive years of my life were these last three, 2017, 18 and 19. I put out six album packages, six. Okay. You know, uh, and the seventh one's coming in June, the summer of sorcery tour box set. Yeah. You know, uh, I feel like I'm just getting started. I mean, I, I just reconnected with my own work for the first time in 30 years. Um, how do you guys you know, do it though? What 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 do you do mentally in order to kind of because what, how you motivate yourselves when you're young is I want to do something with my life. I want to be somebody. When you've already been somebody, does the motivation then become I don't want to stop being somebody? Well, it, it, look it, until you know if you're not a drunk or a drug addict, uh, the craft keeps getting better. I mean, I, I did a radio show called Wisdom Art. Um, which which talks about older artists um, creating art that they couldn't have done 20 or 30 years earlier. You know, there's a whole other level of, of art being made by, by artists who are older. You know, it's, it's the Picasso syndrome, if you will. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I see it with Bruce. I see it with Marty Scorsese, with the Irishman, you know. Yeah. I mean... Even Tarantino, who isn't isn't that old, you know, um, he couldn't have done once upon a time in Hollywood, you know, ten years ago. You know, I mean, you're starting to see certain levels of sophistication and 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 um, evolution, if you will, of the craft, which just keeps evolving, man. It doesn't stop. You know, I mean. I, you know, I don't see any any end in sight at the moment, you know. What do you do uh, with so demons, though? Like, you know, when you're in your 20s, your 30s, your 40s, and you have these mental things swinging around your brain, the skeletons in the closet. When you get to the age of legends such as yourself, do you regret giving so much energy to those negative thoughts or do you reach a point of denial? Or how do you, do, like, what, what do you do with that aspect of life? The people you've known who are dead, 
the mistakes well, you've made. How do you do it? Yeah, yeah. I, I don't, I don't, I don't have negative thoughts. I mean, that's that's the key. And and I and I have found to be, I, I have found denial to, to be my friend uh, in these in the older elder years. You in know? a real way, in the, like it, does it? It never, it never comes into your mind in the shower at night. Just denial is actually an underrated friend in life, is it? Yes, it, it's become a friend. I mean, and, and you had to you had to adjust from when you were young, when denial is the enemy. You know, you, you need to confront your demons and your fears when you're young. But as you get older, you know, all of a sudden I'm I'm losing lots of friends, and I realized, you know, wait a minute, I can't, I really can't deal with this. Um, I, I don't I don't want to go to the funeral unless the family really needs me there, you know. I don't want to know. I, as far as I'm concerned, our schedules are not crossing at the moment. And, you know, and that's how I look at it. I just keep everybody alive in my head, you know. Okay. Um, you know what I mean? And, and I just find it to be quite a, a nice way of coping with it because, uh, you know, you're going to be losing more and more friends every day. I mean, you know, the tributes we did on, on the last couple of tours alone, you know, you're doing a tribute to... Prince, you're doing a tribute to Tom Petty, you're doing a tribute to David Bowie, you're doing a tribute to, you know. Did you know David Bowie? Did you meet Bowie a few times? I, I did, I did, yeah, just briefly. Oh. I never I never really got to know him, you know, uh, but uh, we, we, we met and uh, had a wonderful conversation over dinner at once. Would he but, be the uh, closest then, thing to the, the perfect artist that you've met in terms of creatively performance, diversity, interchangeability? Well, um, no, I, I would say that has to go to take your pick, either Bob Dylan or, or Bruce Springsteen, you know, both of whom continue to, to do creative things that are on a very, very high level. Bowie uh, was his own category, I think, and, and he was certainly up there near, near, near those guys. Um, the thing that Bowie introduced, which was new, really, was distance. Was was you know he he introduced the concept of theatricality when we were very much um, an autobiographical art form you know mm. um, the perception certainly at least you know yeah. maybe not always literally but we're I have a problem here's what it is yeah you know especially if the singer is also the writer you know yeah people believe what you're saying is true and 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 true to your life. And Bowie really was the first to say, um, this, I'm, a, I'm completely fictional. This is a complete fiction, you know. So he, he brought in that theatricality um, almost single-handedly, in a, you know, glam, which Glam picked up. And, uh, you know, a lot which was kind of beautiful, though, because it gave people who didn't have the ability to openly express their heart, the ability to portray it through imagery. And when you listen That's to right. Bowie, I feel like we still know he's telling the truth but that he's not hiding behind symbolism, but he's using the alienation of, of reality in order to express right. himself. So we've gone to space. We're talking about Ziggy Stardust, but we all know that's yeah. still fucking David Jones in his bedroom who's in pain. So it's kind of the right. same well, thing as Dylan yeah. and the boys in a way. Well, in, in a way, that's what I mean. He, he introduced a new a new hybrid of the art form, you know? So, so I mean, I, could, I can perfectly understand people putting him as, as the number one uh, artist in the, in that way, although it's silly to compare, really. Yeah, you know, but but um, it's a all I can tell you is having done both, it's a little more difficult to continue to be autobiographical 
if you you know right into your you know older years it's a it's a lot more challenging than than the fiction now i i just i just did my first fictional album so i i just joined the david bowie club on yeah. my very last album summer of sorcery it's the first album i've ever done of new material because soul fire which i'd done you know in 2017 was uh, just songs i'd written for other people which kind of bridged me back into the business uh which i never intended to come back into but summer of sorcery was literally the first album i've ever done that was not autobiographical and it was not political i wanted to do you know 10 or 12 different characters um completely fictional and and and, and just have pure fun with it and is I've it never possible to write without with with pure fiction? Is does there not have to be an element of personal? Yeah, I know what you mean. I know what you mean. You know, yeah, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. You're, you're gonna have you're gonna have elements of it here and there. You are, you know, especially if you've been doing nothing but autobiographical work your whole life. Yeah, like I have. You know, some of it's gonna slip in, of course. Yeah, but but basically, you know, I could write I could write a song like Love Again. You know, uh, as as a as a pretending I was a 20, 25 year old, you know, yeah. um, you know what I mean? And it's a really, really was such a feeling of freedom and liberation. So is this, this not, new work is like a letter of guidance to your young self in a way. Yeah. Well, it, it, it was a, it was a, it was a, it was a sort of an alt, an, an alternate reality, if you will, you know, looking back on it uh, and just a bunch of different movies, you know what I mean? My, my life's one movie. Here's ten. Here's ten little short movies that are that are not necessarily my yeah. life, you know. Steve, I saw the other day in in one of the media outlets over here in Ireland, and these guys pick up on nothing. So you might have meant nothing by it, but you're making the headlines for a comment on the the unifications of the Irelands. Would you have an opinion on on kind of Irish history, or was it just a kind of globalist stance on on how the world needs to break down borders? Yeah, I mean, again, this is a bigger conversation, but which started years ago when I was absolutely opposed to Brexit. I just thought it was a huge mistake, um, you know, following uh, our ridiculous, uh, you know, Trump Trump years uh, of of national, you know, nationalism, and um, I just I just philosophically believe in. In, in global globalization and, and more unions, more treaties, you know, more combinations of countries. It, it, I find that to be uh, the ambition that we should have, you know, and, uh, and I, I just find, you know, the modern world, which is breaking into na nationalism and religious extremism and putting up walls and separating us more and more is going backwards for the first time in my lifetime, you know? So I said, you know, wouldn't it be ironic if, if, if actually something good came out of Brexit, which was, which was, you know, the unification of Ireland, you know, uh, I was just talking about, you know, uh, you know, and, and I realize it's a bit of a, it's a, it's a bit of a long shot and, you know, and I think I actually do know part of the problems why that, is not likely to happen anytime soon, but but I just said I was just I was just talking, in the same way I'm trying to find positive something positive coming out of these Trump years, and maybe just maybe we may be finally addressing our white supremacy here in America, which you know we were founded on white supremacy, and we've never fixed it, 
you know, even though our founding fathers had the genius to plant some seeds of equality and, 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 and create the seeds of what the idealistic American society should look like, we've never even come close to achieving it, you know. Yeah. And I mean, you know, we're on 400 years, if you count 1619 of slavery, uh, but, or, or we're on 200 years since our Constitution. I mean, it's time to fix this fucking thing, isn't it? You know, Another positivity so, you know, of the Trump years, I think, could be that we now understand how fucking dangerous social media is and the false trust in information that we find on Twitter and Facebook, Instagram, and now TikTok and and the negative effects it can have. And I think that as opposed to continuing to promote an anti-Trump narrative on these platforms, we should take a back seat and go, we're going to get ourselves in continuous trouble as long as we trust these fucking mechanisms. They mean nothing. Well, I mean, this is this is an extremely important point you just made, and and how I how I describe it is, we're we're about I think we're we're coming close to making the biggest decision of our lives of our of our country's lives, um, because if this continues, we're going to have to decide between democracy and freedom of speech. Yeah. Because I don't I don't think we're going to be able to continue to have both. Yeah, you know, and and that's a big one, man. That's a big one. And where would you lean? Where would you lean there as someone who is like historically on the left? Because it is the left who do seem to be anti-free speech, which is opposed to their original stance going back forty or fifty years when you would have been the likes of you and the George Carlins and and even the John Lennons and and the Bowies and the people who spoke up for that anti-authority element. It's now shifting, and the anti-free speech movement it is left-wing. Well, it, it has to be for one simple reason. The lies are moving faster than the truth, okay? The lies circulate uh, and, 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 and reach the audience uh, worldwide faster than the truth can keep up with it, okay? And that is a new problem, all right? This is, you know, uh, I mean, we, we've had various problems with the mass media through the years of people manipulating it, certainly. This you this know, is the worst, been, though. Surely in your time as well, Steve. It's, it's never yeah. been this outrageous on instant. No, no. And, and so what do you do when, when the lies... I mean, understand something. We have something in our country called Republicans, okay? Right now, 50% of Republicans are refusing to take the vaccine, okay? You know, uh, I mean, it, it's reached the point where the lies are, are, are screwing up the world, you know, in, in a profound way. But would they not, are they not saying that also lockdown was something that was unnecessary and it was the lies and exaggeration of the other narrative yeah. that has led us to locking down our world for a year, which has effects yeah. on mental health and economic health that we can't even really count or comprehend? Yeah, yeah, which is not true. What it is was a complete incompetence of a joke, of a buffoon, of a president, you know, and 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 and, and not much better in in, in in you know England with with old Boris Mark over Johnson. there, you know, yeah, I mean you know same thing, I mean just basically people who are not intellectually equipped to deal with this incredible problem. Right? So let's take it off social media because they're in power because they are joke characters and we now glorify joke characters. That's why reality TV stars are the most famous people in the world and that's why pop that has 10 similar verses that repeat each other are number one in the charts and rock and roll is dying. That's why sports 
is nowhere near as entertaining as it used to be because athletes are now chasing online hits rather than on-field success. We're killing our arts because of it. Do you not think well, as the last piece of charitable work the likes of you and Paul McCartney and all could do? And I say this, there's, there's a bracket of the youth who really want this to happen if you couldn't make it happen. Just speak up for anti-Twitter, anti-Instagram, anti-Facebook world yeah. ruling and do a benefit gig in which you deny all streaming on those platforms. Sign some contracts and make it fucking impossible. And we have to tune into the TV and before you lose your voice with age or death and all you guys and all you legends of that era who were the traditional left-wing soldiers, lead us well, into the right direction. Try and make the I left more healthy. I hear you. I hear you. You know, and, and if only it was it was that easy. It's not anymore. I mean, the, you're going to have to deal with some kind of legislation, I think, that somehow deals with, with you know, lies. And, and I know to some extent it's a matter of opinion, but, but to some extent it's not. And, and we have to also deal with prejudice. Um, you know, again, we have to define it. And, and we're going to have to compromise. Define it as essential. Defining it as essential yeah. because there is, yes. there, is an, there is an abuse of the victimhood of prejudice as well that is undermining the narrative because but there's people have, who are on these social media platforms who do not care, who never gave a shit, who are just going with it, who don't have a genuine stance on it. The first step as far as social media, the very first step should be you shouldn't be allowed on social media unless you're using your actual name. All right? that, that's where I would begin. Yeah. Right? Because yeah. A lot of this stuff happens because it's all very anonymous. Exactly. Trolls you deleting know. accounts, so, and therefore they're so, the people so who that, were complaining about. We're giving them headlines. You should need passport proof before you set up a profile. That's right. So that we could do. That that is something we are capable of doing and should do tomorrow. You know Just what I mean? write a song so about that, it and ask Paul McCartney to play bass on it and call it passport proof, <laughs> and people will listen. Seriously, before before you get too old, Steve. Just give us that. Well, you, you've given us enough. Well, please give us one last favor. Get the old gang together and make an album called Passport Proof. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you, man. We'll see. We'll see. I'm not, I'm not sure we have the audience we used to, and, and I'm not sure we're going we're gonna to reach the demographic we need to reach. Well, okay? you, 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 know? you, you still got me, brother, and you still got a lot of listeners. It's an honor to, to talk to you, Steve. Uh, what, what a body of work. And it will, it will live uh, longer than, than all of us, I'm sure. The Sopranos, Little Steve, Bruce Springsteen. And Mecca to Mecca, talk to me about that. I've been to the Cavern Club. And are, are you telling me you might be there again one day? <laughs> it, was, it was so much fun, you know. Um, it, just was, it just was a spontaneous thing. You know, because I'd read, you know, as, as, a, as a kid, I remember reading the Beatles doing something called lunchtime sets, you know, which is just one, one of those wonderful sort of English eccentricities yeah. that... that Americans love, you know, the, the fact that secretaries and clerks, you know, and the local, you know, shopkeepers would take the their priests, lunch, the little you know what I mean? The, the priests, when they were taking a break off raping kids, I didn't say that, you did. <laughs> they would take their lunch into the cavern at lunchtime and the Beatles would play for half an hour. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. Crazy thing, you know. So I said, let's call Liverpool and, and, and see if we can do that, you know. And so we, we did, and, and it was just... Uh, there's so much fun, and uh, you know, we we, we played this, the smaller room because it had the arches, which is, I you know, we, there's only one film of the Beatles, you know, at the Cavern and, and playing some other guy, and that you can see the arches over the over the stage, so I wanted I wanted that, those arches, so 
we had to put the horns and the girls in the hallway and uh, we, we never even saw them during the set but uh, I, ne I needed those arches because there is there is a second room now they built yeah uh, which is big I mean, that's where paul played when he played there but uh, i didn't want that i want i wanted i wanted the small room with the arches just to just to kind of see that that video you know that, that, I, that i'd grown up with you know steve it's been an honor to talk to you and when it comes to uh making a political stance just when you think it's over and you think you're out of the audience just rely on uh, Silvio's old words of once I thought I was out they pulled me back in and uh, <laughs> that's what we expected my man thanks for coming on the Michael Anthony show it's been a true honour to talk to you yeah my pleasure Michael hope to get there in person soon enough Tom and Steve alright it's been now many years my oh, boy you still don't know my chairs of joy no need to go, just take it slow And have you heard the Michael Anthony show? Makes me feel just fine What's it Makes me see the light What about those tears? Believe my eyes. How's it make you feel? Makes me feel 